And, and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Bacon soda. I got bacon soda. Hey, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. I drank way too much whiskey last night, which means I am not drinking again until 6 p.m. today. <laughs> and <laughs> well, you know, guess who's here? One rid- of my favorite people, the man with the popping ties and the fresh suits. Yes. And for decently priced costs because he is not rich people. This is Harlem still. Don't forget that guy. Look at Jason I, I, I looking like a Republican. Harlem, I don't live in Harlem. Yeah, I know. He, he lives in Illuminati. That's, that's the seventh AKA row. Brooklyn. If you call that Brooklyn, so I guess. Yeah. We show up in suits. I like it. I'm sorry. I, I showed up in my best spring attire. Well, okay. I showed up in what I wore last night because I was drinking. Okay? <laughs> so yes, and that's the truth. That is the truth on Stanley's part. You guys Hi, Jason. Hello, back hello. On. Uh, hey, guys. It's great to see you again. I've been away for, what is it, a month? Feels yeah. like over a month. There we go. On daddy duty. On daddy duty. I'm telling you. You look like you're about to go give a sermon somewhere. You oh, do. No, you no, do. no, no, no. See, this, this, is a, this is an English cut. I don't know what that means. Oh, <laughs> wow. We got to get the <laughs> education go. going. Yeah, I feel here. like he should yes. stand up right now and do the path of the righteous man is beset. <laughs> you look Praise good. God. Very no, no, pastoral. No. I, don't, I don't do that Steve Harvey style. No offense to anybody, but those suits are a little bit too uh, no, overblown for me. That's uh, Pulp Fiction. Oh, that's oh, oh that, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's um, Samuel L. Jackson. Before he kills people. Please. He always says Why that you have to associate me with Illuminati and murder? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All I'm ever... Well, all right. All right. Well, guys, if you're wondering, Jason is trying to raise money for a jet, a G6. <laughs> <laughs> and the Mother's Day fundraiser. Oh, man. So, y'all killing me. Nah, nah, Shout out to Creflo Dollar. <laughs> Jason... <laughs> Are you coming through to the um, WHCR holiday party? It's going to be the turn up of the century. We're going to play disco gospel. We're going to turn up. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be there. Well, definitely my tickets should be purchased. Yeah, they are purchased. Yeah. So, I brought mine too. Okay. Speaking. You know, so there's going to be somewhere twerking the gospel music. Praise the Lord. Praise, 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 no. praise, 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 praise the Lord. So, guys, speaking of gospel music and turning up, seven, oh, pardon me, uh, seven, seven teachers from Atlanta were recently um, charged with um, racketeering and sentenced to 20-plus years by helping kids cheat on their test. So here's what happened. As we all know, standardized testing has become a very big thing, especially after No Child Left Behind. If you don't know what that is, that was a bill passed by George W. Bush and I think it's Ted Kennedy, and the idea was to put standards behind how people were supposed to perform for their in, in the schools, and they would give funding to schools that did well, and they would cut funding from schools that did not do well. The way that they would gauge how well someone was doing was by creating tests and standardized tests, so to speak. So now, all of a sudden, testing became a very huge thing to show how well kids were doing. Some places that really struggled with that were a lot of places in the South because they don't know how to read anyway. And, of course, New York and Staten Island because that is also the South of New York. And what happened was you had a lot of schools who were not passing these examinations. And they would lose funding. Schools would get shut down. And teachers felt more pressure to do better. In Atlanta, what they've done or in that section, they started to help kids cheat by giving them the answers. Mm -hmm. This way they could show that the the kids were doing better. You don't have to shut down the school. You don't have to fire teachers. You can give them more funding because how do you expect someone to do better if you don't fund the schools? So if a school struggled in 2012, they'd cut the funding by half. And then they tell you you had to improve double, (laughs) double that. But how can you do that if you don't have the resources for it? And now these teachers, who should have gotten maybe one to three years because of this, met a judge who decided that he wanted to be the worst person in the world and charged him with racketeering because there were bonuses tied behind kids doing well. So he said it was obviously a racketeering 
practice they were doing so they can get money from have, having these kids do well. The teachers are saying, no, we just didn't want to lose our jobs and we helped these kids cheat. And the judge didn't want to, you know, um, sentence them as first time offenders because, like I said before, he is a horrible person who thinks teachers should spend 20 years in jail because rapists don't. Mm. Anyways, I mean, there so, are some sentencing guidelines issues that we can get into talking about if mm. you want to understand why they may have gotten such a harsh sentence, the judge notwithstanding. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it has to do with the racketeering charge and the types of mandatory guideline sentences that flow from being charged with racketeering. Yeah, right. From, from no, what I understand, it, they should have gotten one in three years. But if anything, he's the most colorful judge I've seen in years. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very passionate. Very you know passionate. He's probably like, Barack Obama. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I understand sort of why they did what they did obviously the teachers didn't want to lose their jobs and, I, and you shouldn't base school funding and uh, you know teachers jobs necessarily on uh, standardized tests because then you know if people the poorest schools already have the worst test scores and now you're taking away the funding that they really need on the other hand when you feed students answers they don't learn they right. just know the answers but that doesn't mean they actually learn they in fact they don't learn anything and that's a big problem as well and they also changed some of the answers on the test my problem with the whole thing was like Alyssa and Stanley pointed out like um well first of all these are black educators working in a school district that wasn't doing well was very troubled and they were under so much pressure because of standardized testing and then we know that the standard the common core standard was even higher and they you know it was they had to get they had to do something or else they lose funding so let me explain what you mean by common core so common core um a lot of people think of Comic Core, they think of the Facebook post that their friends and family post where it's this really complicated math question where 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 2 anymore. It equals the, the answer for life, and they don't know how it got there. But the basic principle of Comic Core is that you want children to start thinking critically at an earlier age, and that when reading comprehension, you shouldn't just know that Billy went to the store to buy some chicken. You start to ask the question of, why do you think Billy went to the store? Do you, was there a motivation behind it? Et cetera, et cetera. And in the math questions, they don't, they don't want you to, to just know that 2 plus 2 equals 4 they want you to know how you got to that so they make you break it down at its basic root to understand it now when president obama became president and he had the stimulus package for 797 million dollars they had over 10 billion dollars to give in education funds and they told every single state we will give you a certain amount of money but you either had to a implement the common core standards or b create your own that we felt and match the level of it 40 states agreed to implement the common core standards and some other states, um, the last 10, came up with their own standards that the government felt was okay. Now, the Common Core standard was, works really well in theory because you should have kids thinking critically and they shouldn't be focusing on the test. But what happened was they just kind of threw it on all, all kids. So if you had a kid who was learning one way and now they're in fifth grade and they're like, no, you're wrong, all of a sudden they had to adjust right away and that was not happening because teachers didn't get trained, students weren't prepped, and then you had these tests that were supposed to be intuitive, but they weren't because they didn't have the funding. And now kids had to pass these tests that they were totally unprepared for. What happened in Atlanta was that they got those tests, they couldn't keep up after they were failing already under George W. Bush, and they tried to find a way to get around it. Wow. Yeah, Alyssa. Yeah, I mean, I... You know, I don't know. I can't speak on the what's going on exactly now. I took standardized tests when I was in public school, and this was before No Child Left Behind and before Common Core. But the standardized tests weren't the they weren't necessarily tied to the evaluation of teachers. They were not just uh, Im- new types of standardized tests were not implemented without any warning. I personally think that common core standards are a good idea because I do think that our children need to learn how to think critically. Uh, right now, there's a math problem going around that's a, from the Singapore Mathletes team, and it 
it's basically a common core math program and almost every student in Singapore can answer that question and most adults in the United States, adults, not yeah. even children, cannot answer it. However, I do think um, that the way in which they went about implementing the program was atrocious, atrocious, problematic, and definitely problematic because you can't just switch from doing A to doing B uh, right away. I mean, you have to like ease it in. I mean, That's this what she is. Said. This is an example, but before the show, Stanley and I were talking about bike riding, and I said I don't ride the bike up Amsterdam because it's a really high incline, and it's not graded, and it's very hard to go up. Instead, I ride up Convent because the incline is gradual, and so it makes it a little easier to get up to the school. But that's the exact same analogy when it comes to implementing Common Core. You don't want to do it like Amsterdam Avenue where you're going from point zero to the top of the mountain. You want to gradually grade it up like Convent Avenue. I tried one of those Common Core questions and boy i was like hold on i could do this i like lost like so much like 20 percent in confidence trying to answer this question and i just had to find the answer it's really that hard a a good friend of ours crystal garner was talking about her um a a family member of hers who was doing so well in school they hit her with common core she's depressed she's crying all the time that's how i felt eight years old well selena you're a loser we know that (laughs) so we're not gonna focus on those things anyway but um before we get into Common Core, which we will, I really want to talk about this sentencing. Alyssa, okay. please explain to me how the... Well, I'm proud that they didn't shoot the black teachers because, you know, they I might look so dangerous. I so bad for them. Like, no, they were like grandmothers. But I got to jump in here. Why, why are we associating this necessarily with being a black or African? American? It's not a racial issue. What it is is that they've tied together funding and employment with standardized testing. That's mm-hmm. the issue. Now, is there obviously some correlation between the lack of proper funding and the fact that these people are majority if not all totally african-american i think that the, that that garners more investigation you know more more through our work through but just to say as though the judge and the system is condemning these people and hitting them with what is it did they hit them with a rico charge uh, yeah. yeah it was a rico charge wow <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah uh-huh. you sure hey, about what you're saying no no i'm now? sure about what i'm saying i mean the severity of the sentencing is is questionable but however i think it's much more tied to the impracticality of these uh programs jason they hit the gym teacher with a rico charge hey <laughs> coach mitch they hit him with a rico, <laughs> with rico. hey i know <laughs> some people personally that should be hit with rico yeah. but a teacher is not one of them no, I you, you helped really pass that test with that yayo huh hey that's what they like Alyssa, explain please right Lose so your because they were charged with rico if uh, so we should tell people what yes rico let's is. define rico rico yes, is the racketeering influenced and corrupt organizations act it's a federal statute but there's also state versions of it uh or state Equivalence of and RICO was created uh, in order to combat large scale, essentially mafia operations. Because the problem was somebody like um, his name is escaping me. He was charged with IRS. That's how they finally got oh, Al Capone. Al Capone. Back in the day. So like somebody like Al Capone, it was really hard to get to him because he had all of his underlings committing a lot of these crimes for him, and they didn't always link back to him. And so the government created this. Thing that was called RICO was essentially a way to get people at the top in order to basically tie everybody up in a conspiracy and mm-hmm. say that, you know, you engaged in certain acts and these acts were to further uh, the conspiracy. And that was a way for them to get people way up at the top in these corrupt organizations. Uh, then states adopted RICO and came up with their own versions of the federal RICO statute. Mm-hmm. And so essentially RICO applies or is supposed to apply to like gang operations, stuff like that, where you kind of have a 
almost like a structure where there's somebody at the top that you really want to get. But without this type of law, you would never be able to get them because they sit in an office and they call shots, but they don't ever go out on the street and, you know, do the dirty. They made a brand new law just to get that one white man. So (laughs) Look at God. They sort of did, actually. Um, And so now this... In this scenario, they were using this, and they basically argued that these teachers were conspiring uh, to commit racketeering in the way that they wanted to get money from the state. And the way to get money from the state or more money from the state was that their kids were going to do well on the exams. So in order to get their kids to do well so that they could get the money, they gave the kids the answers. And so that's why they were charged under RICO, because essentially they were, you know, Doing, they were engaging in criminal acts in order to get more money that they otherwise wouldn't have deserved. Now, obviously, there's this question of efficacy on the test, which is they were concerned that they were going to lose the funding that they already had, and that's why they did it. Right. They weren't necessarily doing it to get the to get additional funding. Right. Um, so we could get into a larger conversation about that. But so once RICO is triggered, then you trigger the RICO sentencing guidelines, which you have the regular sentencing guidelines for the underlying criminal acts. That's the one to three you mentioned. Yeah. But then when you're hit with the RICO charge, there's um, a bump up. Who was that deal bump to, to up, hit the RICO charge, though? Who was like, yo, let's get well, that the RICO prosecutors, The prosecutors. The prosecutor gets to make the decision on what to charge always. A charging so, decision is always made by a prosecutor and or a grand jury. The prosecutor could have presented this case to a grand jury and presented potential things that these people could be charged with, and then the grand jury votes on whether or not to charge them with the RICO offense or not. But ultimately, the prosecutor still puts the potential charges in front of the grand jury and lets them vote. So the prosecutor gets to decide whether or not a RICO is well, one of the things they put in front of the grand jury. Why is your well, brain so amazing? No, well, listen, I, have, I, have a, this? I have a question about that, Alyssa, because it seemed like the judge was just, he just wanted to make an example out of them because from my understanding, prosecutors suggested one to three and then he more than doubled. Right. And so he has that he jurisdiction. Has, so he that's has that what right I'm saying. It's, it's a bump up. So you have the initial underlying sentence for the initial crimes and then you can have the RICO bump up. And in some cases, the RICO bump up is mandatory. There is no discretion. And in other cases, the RICO bump up is discretionary. And I don't know specifically the law in Georgia, nor am I licensed attorney in Georgia, so I can't really, I can only speak generally about it, not specifically, but what I am presuming happened in this situation is that the RICO bump up was discretionary and the judge decided in his discretion that he was going to add it on. Wow. No, definitely. I was a good thing that you answered all that because I was trying to figure out um, what was the sort of federal, federal jurisdiction when it came to this particular case? I mean, I know there is funding, but could you tie it that quickly together in which one could say one was evading taxes or something else I that mean, was under federal law? Essentially, uh, you're cheating the government out of money that you're okay. undeserving of, right. is the argument, is that if you would have just allowed your students to take the test as is, they would have done mediocre or poorly and therefore you wouldn't have gotten this money so by you're essentially cheating the money cheating the government out of money that you don't deserve um well and and you know one thing that the judge kept saying he kept warning them he kept saying you know what take the plea deal admit that you did something wrong apologize and take the plea and he gave even up until the last minute he was like if you don't take this plea deal then you're gonna suffer and he warned them and i think two um two of the um defendants actually took the plea deal last minute but the other 10 were like we are we're innocent and they they wanted to file an appeal so that's why they didn't take the plea deal so that happens a lot in criminal law it's essentially used as to put pressure on i just had this scenario come up uh, with a a case, which is essentially the judge said, if your client takes the plea, 
now. If your client decides to take the plea, um, then I will offer her a non-jail sentence. However, if your client decides she's not going to plea and she essentially and the judge, I don't see it as a waste of the court's time because you're legally entitled under the Constitution to take your case to trial if you wanted to. That, But that doesn't mean they can't uh, incentivize you not to go to trial. And so what the judge said in this scenario was once you proceed past this point and you decide to start doing hearings, then I'm, I'm going to take that non-jail sentence off the table. And then if you get convicted, I'm going to sentence you to, you know, somewhere in the guidelines range of one year to four years. So that's another reason why that happened, which was these people were like, I'm not taking the plea. I'm going to trial. And so the judge said, OK, fine. You know, you basically made the court take all this time to go to trial. And so I'm now going to hit you with the bump up in order to penalize you for essentially going to trial, which is awful. And we, right. that's a criminal and justice issue that we could get into separately and apart from this issue. Right. Well, we're actually going to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk more about standardized testing. This is all rooted in standardized testing. And we'll talk more about that right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. You didn't drop your alcohol. You damn right, I didn't drop that. What sweet, were you drinking on last night? Whiskey, and they they lied to me. They told me it was Black Label. It was Maker's Mark. Oh yeah, you got cheated, man. And I knew no, it was open. But bar. they were pouring it out of the Black Label yeah. bottles, which is illegal. Is that legal? No. no, it's not. It's that a, is you not can get legal. in big trouble. The this, this, oh. the state will come and they will take your liquor license if you get caught doing. Don't that. say who did it, Stanley, because you'll get them in trouble damn, dropping listen, dimes. I, I wasn't trying to dry snitch. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if you're at a party at your own house and you want to be cheap and you want to fill up the, the black label bottle with the maker's Do people market. do that? But if you are running a place that you have a state liquor license and you get caught changing out the bottles like mm-hmm. that, the state will come and take your license. Oh, no. Lord Jesus God. Be careful for Alyssa. I'm going to post some I don't work for the state. I, it, well, if true. that happens to you, call me and I'll defend you. Okay. <laughs> we'll work it like, out. Full price, my brother. So we're back. price. Cool. Yeah, there's a fee for that. That's right. So, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice. Be heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. We we're talking about Hennessy, Black Label, Whiskey, and of course, the teachers that got 20 years for teaching too much answers while the what? kids are taking the test. That, that made almost do. no, most, no Selena, sense. Shut your stupid mouth. You okay? shut, Stanley. I mean, who's saying stupid things now? Well, me, but I do that for a living. <laughs> Anyways, guys, in case you were wondering, this is Stanley. We have Selena. We have Alyssa. And we have Jason, also known as Kingpin of the Brooklyn. And I would like to let you know. <laughs> wow. Are you trying are to you get a me? Kingpin? You trying to get me hit with a Rico You charge? see him no. snitching, right? Wow. You see him snitching on everybody. Stanley, what is Jason up? Jason just showed me his gun. I'm <laughs> <laughs> on his waist. No. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this just gets worse and worse. This is getting worse and worse. <laughs> no, but anyways, guys. We, we you know, well, I think because they, the, the teachers in Atlanta got in trouble, that's why Stanley is just dropping dimes on all of us. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to get some, some cash money. But, you money. know, here's the thing is that we're not addressing the underlying problem, which is that students that come from poor neighborhoods don't necessarily get the resources that they need in order to succeed in school. And then we're judging teachers based on standardized tests that have been implemented rapidly that we're not gradually in, but we're not addressing the underlying problem of poverty and resources in order to get the students the training and the skills that they need in order to be able to do well on the test. So we're blaming the test 
But really, we should be blaming. We're blaming the teachers, you mean? Or well, no, we're blaming the teachers, and we're blaming the test, and we're blaming the system. And there definitely are, and potentially some problems with all those things. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to what I say all the time: is we have to deal with the issue of poverty and income inequality, and how that affects our school system, and how that plays into race. Well, you're gonna like our guests that we have on the line right now. So we have two guests on the line, but I'm gonna introduce the first one first because that makes sense. And his name is Jamal Bowman, and he's an educator and school principal of the Cornerstone Academy for Social Action Middle School. In the Bronx. So we have a local guest this week, and I'm very excited to have him on here. And he will be talking to us and giving us his input on what's going on and his experience as a school principal. Jamal, thank you so much for calling in today. Good morning. No problem. Good morning. Thank you all for having me. No problem. Jamal, I have to ask you a very important question. Everyone gets asked this. What is your drink of choice at brunch? (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, At brunch. (laughs) I hope my students aren't listening right oh, yeah, now. Uh, yeah, that's Drop in time. Well, why would a yeah, kid want to listen to the radio? Do they even know what radio is? If I'm in the mood, if I'm in the mood, I might go with uh, a martini. I'm a martini guy. Martini? Classic. Yeah. I used to make fun of martinis, and then one day I had one, and I was like, oh, this is just an olive and vodka. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is good. But Jamal, Yeah, but I don't promote drinking like that. Let's not put that out there like that. I know. I know. You don't promote so, drinking. I don't. Leave that up to Stanley. Work hard, play hard. We work hard first. And then we play hard. I, you know, I'm that's actually the topic of our second segment, isn't it? About the wage debate. We'll get back to that. That's what definitely will. So, Jamal, we've been talking about these teachers in Atlanta who have been charged 20 years for helping their kids cheat on these tests because they felt pressure to have their kids perform so they would not lose the funding they had for their schools. So we've talked about the charges already. We've talked about how ridiculous they sound to us and everything else like that. What I'd like to do is switch gears now and talk about this pressure. Is this a real pressure for that teachers feel like the need to perform as a principal of your school? Do you really, do you feel like your teachers go through this when it comes time for test time? Well, well, not at my school. I mean, we, we try to do a good job of just keep, keep things calm, keep things tranquil, tranquil, uh, the test is just a bump in the road. It's kind of something that we have to do, at least up to this point, we felt we had to do it. So the, the pressure uh, isn't that high in my school because it's just not the kind of culture we try to build. However, overall, I could definitely see how it's a, it's a, a huge amount of pressure in other schools because you're aligning teacher evaluation uh, to the results their students uh, receive on the exams. And there's so many questions about the exams in terms of the validity in terms of the reliability, in terms of who created them, and how much the uh, how much uh, the lack of teacher voice, if you will, was involved in the creation of the test. So the, the tests are very controversial for a lot of very good reasons, and aligning them to uh, teacher evaluations and ultimately teacher jobs is why you know I think we have the, the anxiety, the stress, and the frustration. And why teachers, you know, the teachers in Atlanta, unfortunately, did what they did. Right. So speaking of Common Core, and thanks for that, for that breakdown. I kind of wanted to speak more about the controversy, as we've been seeing just this past week. A number of students, a number of parents all across the nation have been opting out, and there's this whole opting out movement, meaning meaning that they're purposely keeping their children home so that they don't sit in and take the test. Okay. And that's like that's that's how they're fighting against it. I mean, they went to lawmakers, they they went to their local legislators, but now they're like, we're just going to keep our students um, home. And up to 60 to 70 percent of some um, some school districts here in New York have reported that, well, well, 60 percent, like there's been some school districts where they said that up to 60 to 70 percent of students didn't even show up and like upstate New York. So I wanted to ask you. 
Long Island and upstate. Um, Jamal, I want to ask you about this opt-out movement. What is particularly fueling it and why and how did it become so strong this year in particular? Well, you know, like I said, because of the lack of transparency in terms of the test creation process and also how the Common Core uh, standards came to be, because of the lack of teacher voice, uh, because of the ambiguity and the developmentally inappropriateness of the exams, uh, you know, parents are pushing back and parents are standing up and they're finally saying enough is enough. Um, too often, uh, whether it's the city, whether it's the state, or whether it's the federal government, they do education to parents as opposed to doing education with parents. Parents are the most important voice in educating their children, and they need to be uh, at the first seat at the table, if you will, along with teachers. And because they haven't been, now they're saying enough is enough, we're pushing back, and this needs to change right now, today. And I applaud them for it. Right. Um, from my understanding, we also have um, Darkarian samples on the line with us. Do we have her on the line? Yeah, she's right here. No, nope, okay, no, nope, we, we don't. Lost her. Do, okay, so we don't have her on the line right now. No. Okay, so oh, I, I think I just dropped that line. I'm sorry about that. Oh, it's yeah. okay. So, so call back in. The number is two one two six five zero six nine zero three. Just out of curiosity, what's the practical effect of the students opting out? How do they, um, I guess, move up to the next grade if they decide not to take their te- the test, or if their parents decide that they're not going to take the test? Well, the parents have the option to request a portfolio assessment of their child, and what that means is we look at the child's overall performance throughout the school year, you know, writing pieces, uh, projects they have worked on. Parents have the right to request a portfolio assessment of their child in lieu of the state exam. So it's not, the state exam is just one measure uh, in terms of deciding if a child is promoted to the next grade. Uh, but there's a portfolio assessment that can be used and that many schools use and many teachers use, and parents are fine with that. So we do have another call on the line who I want to get to right now. So this is we have Valerie DiCaprio on the line who would like to let her voice be heard. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for calling in. Um, I just want to clarify a little bit. Um, we've had a dramatic increase in the number of refusals since they were first issued a couple of years ago. And I think that really is a reflection of parental opposition to Common Core as a whole, not just the test. If you do um, research into Common Core, you will see that there was absolutely very limited educator input into the standards, resulting in standards which are developmentally inappropriate for our youngest students. And then in a very ironic twist, what's happening is that graduating seniors will have Um, very limited math and science curriculum as they leave, and they're going to be even further behind than they were previously. And if you, in fact, look up the creator of the math standards, Jason Zimba, he actually admits in a videotaped testimony with Dr. Sandra Stotsky that these standards are not appropriate for a selective four-year university. So my concern is that we are essentially setting up a dual-class system. So for the students um, who come from very wealthy families who can afford to go to private schools that may not be aligned with Common Core, they're going to be the ones who are going to go on to these very um, white-collar positions, doctors, lawyers. And for everyone else in public school, they're not going to be able to compete for those same fields because of their public school education. Thank you so much for that. So I, I... 
a couple of things. And first of all, thank you so much for calling in and giving your comments. But I must say, it would behoove me if I did not say that some of the things you were saying were problematic. So a couple of things about Common Core. Common Core is a curriculum that was actually written and had contribution from multiple educators and administrators. So that was one thing. The second thing is the majority of private schools and pretty much every educating system in the world uses the Common Core standard. Third, Common Core emphasizes on critical thinking skills. And when you go to college, you have to think critically. A lot of students don't do well in college because they do not have that ability because they've only been used to answering questions. Next up, the people who gra- you graduate using Common Core will be more prepared because their reading and writing skills will be a lot stronger because Common Core emphasizes reading and writing. You are correct in the fact that the Common Core math only goes to a certain level. Their their argument for that is that if you master these standards by the 10th grade, 11th grade, then you, you, you can use them to apply to other pieces of math. And I think everyone in this room, minus the engineer, will tell you that after fourth grade, I didn't really know what the hell I was using most of the math for anyway, and I don't use it now. Jason? No, I want to ask uh, Mr. Bowman a question concerning these parent protests. How much of this is actual ideological opposition to the Common Core? I mean, based on an objective observation of what it is and how it really is implemented throughout the system. And how much of it is really emotional? Because I'm getting the sense some of these parents, probably not all, and once again, this is anecdotal. This is not, you know, evidenced by anything, may be having a bit of resistance because their children aren't doing very well on these Common Core standards, and as you already cited, the alternative is the entire portfolio assessment, which may reflect more positively on their children. So I'm thinking there may be more of an emotional uh, issue here than just saying, well, I'm opposed to the Common Core and how it was uh, formed. I, well, I think, I'm sorry, was that question directed to me? Yes, Joel, yes. you can answer. Yeah, well, I, I think it's all of the above. I think there's definitely an emotional component to it, and I don't think that makes it a bad thing. Um, I also think there's an intellectual component and a political component, if you will, in terms of how the Common Core was formulated. I need, I need to co- make one correction, correct you on one point. You mentioned the Common Core was a curriculum. The Common Core is not a curriculum. It's a set of standards. Those standards are aligned to the state assessments that are given every year in grades 3 through 8. Now, part of the, my problem with the, with the standards are the way we assess the standards. So we, we test more in this country than the top-performing countries in the world. Our kids have nine hours of testing every year and get grades three through eight, special needs students and English language learners test even more than that. So that's one. Two, these assessments were put in place to close the so-called achievement gap, in quotes, in air quotes, so-called achievement gap. You don't close an achievement gap or any gap by assessing more often. You close it by teaching, and you close it by meeting students where they are and meeting the academic, social, and emotional needs of students where they are. And that begins at birth. So until we close the gap from birth to age five and focus on executive function skills and the language gap that's happening in our concentrated areas, we're never going to close any of these gaps. So testing as often as we do, we have 13 years of data that shows it doesn't work. Right. So we need to take a completely different approach. From my understanding, other countries don't test as often, but they do implement some type of national test so that we can assess the students and see where they stand in different regions and then, um, you know, funding and certain and, and then give them for in funding accordingly. And they use so the let's higher take, let's standards. Let's take a couple of examples here. So Finland has been top two, top three over the last few international assessments. They do no national assessments at all, okay? Canada assess, I believe, in the third and the sixth grade. Right. Um, and other, in other countries assess way less often. So let's say, for example, 
we assessed in the fourth and the seventh grade, and the assessments were 90 minutes of pop as opposed to nine hours of pop, the state can still gather the data that they so-called need to implement funding in areas where they feel the funding should be implemented. First and foremost, we're already underfunded as it is, whether we take the state uh, assessments into account or not. Uh, uh, upper, upper middle class and upper class communities get more funding than city schools as a whole anyway. And like I said, for the last 13 years, they've had data and they've been providing, providing extra funding, but the achievement gap still remains because we're focused on the wrong thing. We're focused on assessing to death as opposed to quality teaching right. and pedagogy, which is where we need to focus. And even before that, our high-risk, at-risk communities need interventions beginning at conception from birth to age five so that when kids enter kindergarten, they're more prepared for school. Right now, they're not because the resources aren't being implemented there. They're being implemented and over-tested. Jamal, preach, man, preach. I do want to just give one second so we can have another caller call in. She's calling all the way from Colorado, and I'm pretty sure it is not 1148 over there, so she might be a little bit sleepy. Um and I'm going to put her name. And she just told to me over the phone, so I'm kicking my Darcy Ann Samples? Whoa. Okay, right yeah, on, we, ha- we have her on the line. So, Darcy Ann, thank you so much for calling in. Please let your voice be heard. Uh, good morning. I am calling from Colorado, and um, uh, I started opting my child out in fifth grade. What happened is we'd moved a lot. He got to fifth grade, and he was just totally stressed and, and had become pretty sad. And he, he told me he was worried about the state test and especially the writing portion of the test. He's a fifth-grade boy, and that's you know pretty common for that age. So the more nervous he got, the more I looked into the opt-out movement in Colorado. Um, I had been active in trying to reclaim education for several years already. So my husband wasn't really um, that interested in opting out. He said that you know there could be repercussions, and he was worried. But he did agree that we could opt Isaac out that first year. Um, so when when we opted out at our school, we got so much pushback. We were told we would be taken to truancy court. So finally, I sent my my son to school, and they sat him down one on one in the principal's office, trying to force him to take this test. Wow! And I couldn't be prouder of my ten year old son because he stood up to this coach principal and wrote one sentence and then shut the book. So it was really a very abusive situation. And right. um, it, it really it brought my husband on board 100%, and we are now very active opt-out promoters in right. the state of Colorado. And, you know, thank you so much for um, for calling in, Darcy, and I actually had a, a question about that, and, you know, I, I appreciate you caring and being so invested in your child in your children's lives to the point that, you know, you, you, you talk to them, you found out what their needs are, how they felt about this test, and then you took measure and you, um, you acted accordingly. But I have a question, and, you know, if you can answer that, that would be great, and we can also um, present it to Jamal as well. But if tests are so bad, how come people don't opt out of, like, the SATs or the ACT? Because like, we can't. But, no, but I'm saying, like, so if it, if it's, is, it, if it, is it standardized testing itself? Is it the test that's so bad? Because we have to take tests in order to measure and to, to be able to see how everyone's doing. I'd love to address that. Um, we're... I know some opt-out parents are opting out of everything, but I am an educator, and I have been for 29 years, and I teach special ed, and I teach in low-performing Title I schools. The tests that are the worst are these state assessments. They're 
they're thrown together in a year. You know, the the stories are horrific. Um, they're way above students' level. And the questions are completely confusing. So you can't even figure out what they want you to answer. And um, in addition to the poor quality of the test, we now have to take them on computer. And in my Title I school, we have one computer lab and a couple of carts. It is impossible to take these tests on campus with all these students and not interfere weeks of the school year for every child in the school. In And worse yet, in Colorado just this week, there were, um, we had to cancel an entire day of our uh, science and social studies testing because the server went okay. down at the Pearson uh, level. So it, it's just so ridiculous. I spent three hours hand-entering student names into groups to get ready for the park test. And There's my a park peers test? for the park, P A R C C. Oh, okay. They do not link to our database. So every group must be hand created. Every child must be hand entered into the proper group. That just sounds like a and really then, bad system to be quite honest. I think that that may just be specific to Colorado. Every state obviously has their own way of implementing this. And so that's why you may see in some states the implementation process has been better than in other states. But I did want to get to some comments from Politically Preposterous. Uh, We got uh, three of them so far. Arthur says he would like to know what alternative solutions people have to offer because the system we had prior to Common Core sure wasn't a good one either. Rabina says she disagrees. She said we ruined a really good system that the average intelligence and knowledge of a person who graduated high school in her day, she said that was 1963, is compatible with that of a college grad today. The only thing that was wrong with public schools back then was that we skewed American history too much to make it seem that America was better than it actually was. And Michelle said the alternative is to put money back into education. She thinks that it's being education system is being robbed by the Republican Party and that more teachers and more teaching and more learning materials equals smaller classroom sizes and more attention given to each student and therefore better scores, I guess. All right. uh, I mean, was... personally, me, I just I see this as an implementation problem. I, I think we have to hold our children to higher standards, and, and that may mean we have to implement the system better. But ultimately, you know, if we want to compete with the rest of the world, we may not need to assess our children as much, but we need them to think the way everybody else in the world is thinking. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Jamal, I know you want to give a response. And... Uh, to some of that? Yes, go ahead. Okay, uh, first and foremost, there are 800 college and universities that don't require an SAT score. Secondly, the SAT score at many of our top universities are just one measure, looking at a holistic measure uh, to allow students to come into their schools. The other piece that you mentioned, you're exactly right. The way for us to compete with other countries and to stay ahead of other countries is to implement an interdisciplinary project-based curriculum that are aligned to the needs of our economy. Everyone knows that STEM drives our economy. If the state wants to assess something, why doesn't it assess STEM? Why doesn't it create a curriculum and standards aligned to the STEM needs so that students are prepared for jobs of the 21st century? Many of the jobs of the 21st century are unpredictable. We don't know what's coming. So students need to be adaptive, they need to be creative, and they need to think with an entrepreneurial mindset so that they could create the jobs of the 21st century. 
The way we do testing now, it narrows it. It, it forces teachers and schools to align curriculum to these narrow standards. The problem is in higher standards. Yes, we need higher standards. We need holistic standards, and we need to measure them accordingly. And the last point, there's a difference between summative assessment and formative assessment. Assessment happens in schools all the time with teachers. When do we stop trusting teachers to assess students accordingly and, and, and help them get students to where they need to be? So it's not about it's not about it's not about higher standards. We ha- that's fine. We need higher standards. But we need kids who think divergently, creatively, laterally, and are prepared for jobs in the twenty first century. So in terms of solutions, I mentioned interdisciplinary, I mentioned focusing on early childhood, birth to five and closing those gaps there and focusing on teacher pedagogy, relentlessly on teacher pedagogy. If we do that and align the curriculum to the economy, you'll see results, drastic results in one generation. Jamal, thank you so much for that and thank you for calling in today. We really appreciate it. It sounds like the Bronx is a really good principal. Jason, I know you had a comment. No, no, I just wanted to recognize and, and definitely concur with Jamal. There's a motif that's that's being followed throughout this discussion with both Darcy and Jamal. One is the aspect of investment, early investment, and the other being early intervention. Mm-hmm. It seems that no matter what the point is, whether it's assessment, whether it's um, additional funding, because the funding obviously is being put towards testing, mm-hmm. if you don't equip those young children from an early age with an interest in those particular fields which are going to make them economically competitive, I can tell you this as an engineer, this is what I do for a living. This is what I do for a living. I am one of the few American engineers, let alone one of the few people of color, who I've ever been in a room with when it comes to doing multinational projects, large-scale projects. It's because we're not prepared to do any of this stuff. I know everyone talks about STEM and the app economy, but that's a very, very infinitesimal component of the, of the world economic structure in the sense of what will get you employed, what will make you competitive, and you really have to look at that and address where is it that we deviate. And I think that Jamal and uh, Darcy Ann was the name really recognize that in both the sense of okay, we have to have that investment of our child in our children. Mm-hmm. As a parent, I say that as well. From the, as a parent and um, as someone who is also a you know STEM person, mm-hmm. saying okay, what are we looking at? What are we identifying? How do we get those resources to the children? And then from there, how do we continue supporting those children to be to be competitive? Yeah. To be competitive at the end of the day. So thank you so much for that, Jason. We had to wrap this up, guys. We went a little bit over time. Um, I just want to say very quickly, uh, I think I'm, I'm more so aligned with Jason and Jamal when it comes to the ideology on the structure of education. But I do want to say to the parents who are doing participating in these mass opt-outs because the test hurts their kids' feelings and makes them feel sad and makes them feel pressured. The world is a tough place, and we have an, an overabundance of people with no backbones and no and no resiliency because they got ninth-place trophies and they got hugged instead of taking tests. There is nothing wrong with taking a test. There's nothing wrong with challenging kids. There is nothing wrong with making them uncomfortable because by being uncomfortable is how you will eventually react and grow. And if you don't want to let your kid take a test that they may or may not need because it made them feel sad, then you should really take a look at yourself in the mirror. Because raise your hand if you raise your hand if as a kid you enjoy taking tests. I didn't mind it because I Selena usually be did quiet. well. You're a nerd. Oh, All right. <laughs> no one else raise your hand. Not even the engineer or the lawyer. I'm just thinking about that ninth place trophy. I think my yeah. dad would. And I did me very well on tests too, but that yeah. didn't mean I liked taking. Yeah, it. yeah I hated taking tests. And you know what? If there was, if this is really an issue about the the problematic like structure of tests, they'd be complaining about the SATs, the LSATs, and the GREs because we all know the SATs do not test what you know. Those tests are structured for people who had tutors and $500,000 classrooms. Kaplan. Yes. That you don't learn anything. You learn how to how to answer questions to take those tests, and no one's complaining about that. They're mad because Billy came home and cried because he didn't know what 2 plus 2 was. I don't care about your tears. We'll be right back, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. When we return, it'll be the quickie.
Alright, fine. You know what? If you want to be all judgmental, this is the news roundup. Yes, guys. this is the news roundup where we talk about some of our favorite stories of the week. The ones that made us laugh, cry, very upset, tweet, rant, or sometimes delete friends. What happened you know, to turn over tables? That's what Stanley does okay. in reaction. That's not me. And speaking of myself, my name is Selena Hill. If you're just tuning in, I'm here with Alyssa, Jason, and Stanley on the ones and twos. We just wrapped up a great discussion about Common Core and standardized testing. And we're moving right into the week's stories. I mean, so much went on this week. We had, um, was it? Um, Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio, we know that he has declared his candidacy in the 2016 presidential race. He did that a couple of, well, I think it was Monday. But the big announcement was on Sunday. Oh, Hillary. Air, yeah, definitely. Hillary. Definitely. So, I mean, what's what do you, what are you guys feeling about the strategy going on with um, the 2016? I mean, so with respect to the Republican Party, I think that really Walker, Scott Walker, who has not announced yet, Jeb Bush, who has also not announced yet, and Marco Rubio, who has announced, are probably going to be the three strongest contenders. Uh, I don't think that the other people that would like to be president are going to actually be able to compete on the national level. Uh, with respect to the Democrats, I know there's a lot of people that aren't particularly happy, people on the far left, with the Hillary candidacy, but I think from a political science perspective, she has the best chance of winning the presidency. And I think she would be smart to have somebody on her ticket that's further left than she was to kind of get those people on the far left to come over to the Hillary side. Uh, I think she probably has the best chance of beating a Republican. And, and this election is going to be so important because I think there's going to be probably four Supreme Court nominations that come up for grabs in the next eight years. And uh, whoever's president for the next four, maybe eight years, is going to have the opportunity to change the composition of the court in a very serious way for a very long time. Jason? No, I think that um, that's a good assessment. But we are underestimating the effectiveness of Marco Rubio. And I, mm. I know what you guys are saying. I know you guys are right. looking at me saying, oh, not this guy again. Let me tell you. If you take a look, I mean, just just use Google Analytics and, and look up Marco Rubio, the, the key words associated with him, youth, charisma, ambition. I mean, and he's a, pretty good looking, side note. Uh, hey, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's if, an if, advantage. If that if that's yeah, that is definitely an advantage. You it works for Barack Obama. You know? Oh, not you, Stanley. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Keep going, get, Jason. But to get back to that, the whole point being Scott Walker, I think that uh, while as far as the ideology and sort of the, you know, the, the true core of the party, the Republican Party, he speaks to that group. Um, he's a national unknown. He really is. Um, Jeb Bush, Americans don't like dynasties. No, no matter how much we, we, we talk about it, we really don't like the idea of dynastic succession in presidency. So uh, that I don't think is going to work ultimately. So leaving the field as it is right now. And Rand Paul, I know everyone loves Rand Paul. He's, but he, he's just a libertarian in Republican clothing right now. The reality is Marco Rubio is the most uh, viable candidate for Republican Party. And I think he really does have the advantage. If he can tweak his messaging to appeal to Latinos and to women, which I think he's capable of doing, mm -hmm. Does he have your vote, Jason? Yo soy un Latino también, so, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> okay. You know, I don't know okay. what he just said, but I I'm hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I think Marco Rubio does have a decent shot. I, but just, I mean, it's way early to start looking at the polls and using the polls to kind of analyze who's going to win the election. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, when they're doing head-to-head matchups, again, with the caveat, it's super early, uh, they're finding that the one candidate or proposed candidate uh, from the Republican Party that has the best shot of beating Hillary is Jeb. 
It's not Marco yeah. Rubio. Really? Uh, like I said, yeah. it's true. really it's still true. early, well, but yeah, in head-to-head matchups, the best shot the Republicans have right now at this point in time to beat Hillary is Jeb. Americans are really not good at making decisions. If Jeb isn't, if Jeb isn't running to win, and if Hillary has such a, this this huge lead, and no one is asking themselves, isn't it a problem that we're like the primaries has become pretty much Hillary's like pretty much like cat daddy to the finish line? We should be asking well, ourselves I mean, who are the real two, candidates. There's two arguments that could be made about that. On one side, you could say, well, it's actually good that nobody runs against Hillary because you don't want her getting attacked from Democrats, th- these attack ads. Because you that, expect her to win. That then Republicans can then use some of these things against her, and the Democrats have done the dirty work for the Republicans. On the other hand, you could say a challenger would be good, especially a challenger from the left, because it would make Hillary Clinton have to rethink some of her policy perspectives and maybe push her a little further to the left, which which is, I think, what a lot of people on the far left want. But the alternative to that is that if you push her a little further to the left, remember, the the election is basically fought between the 8 to 12 percent of the electorate who considers themselves in the middle or undecided. So if you push Hillary a little further to the left, then you may lose some of the people she would otherwise pick up in the center. It's quite complicated. I want a robust, robust primary with real candidates who have a real shot of winning. And I know that America is wonderful at making bad decisions with, with elected officials. And I can only pray that if we are stupid enough to vote for Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush <laughs> as president, I've made enough money that I can be somewhere rich and not be bothered by all the nonsense that they will implement. And then people can be like, how did this happen? And I can call them idiots on air wow. and not worry about getting in trouble. Yeah, but it's also, you know, another really big thing that's going to be important in 2016 is who gets elected to Congress. Because remember, there's also a congressional election that year, not just a presidential election. And so the composition of Congress is really going to matter, and it's really going to determine whether the president, whoever that may be, can implement their vision. Or, you know, I mean, as you know, with when Barack Obama got elected in 2008, for the first two years of his presidency, he had a, a Democratic uh, Congress, both in the Senate and in the House. And so that's why they were able to implement some of the things like the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act and the Affordable Care Act, et cetera. And then in 2010, when Republicans took the House, then you started to see a lot of the obstructionism happening. So just as important as who wins in 2016 is who controls Congress. Well, speaking of things about control, I don't know if that was a good segue or not, but I wanted to just follow up on the Walter Scott shooting. We had a full, well, we had a, about a 10, 15 minute discussion last week about it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the shooter, Michael Sake, Sl- Slager, Slager will not, will not see the death penalty that made news this week um, because of the statutes and the laws um, within South Carolina. But the, the person that was in the car with, um, Walter Scott has actually came out and also the person who recorded the video mm-hmm. came out as well saying that he did not see a struggle that mm-hmm. took place between Walter Scott and the cop and then it was a third woman that came out and said that she did actually see something going back and forth and she was a, she was a black woman who was like yeah I was in the area and I saw you know a little a little tussle of some sort so the case obviously is continuing to make uh, make its way but I mean we, I mean, it's almost every single day oh, we're you hearing forgot. about some people, a, a black person dying. A black guy was shot by a volunteer cop. And then oh, right. he was shot. The volunteer cop says, oh, I thought I was thought it was my, my taser. taser. Yeah. And then the real cop came and put, while the guy was bleeding to death, put his knee in the guy's neck. And the guy's like, I can't breathe. And the cop was like, F your breath. F- yeah, and that's true. And the volunteer cop too. is a 74-year-old insurance broker of something like that. Yeah. And he pretty much, like, you can donate a certain amount of money and get a gun and a badge and go out in the field. And that's what happened. 
Right. Because, and yeah. you you know what? And the thing is, the local police department weren't even going to charge him. It wasn't until I believe the district attorney stepped in and was like, no, we're going to prosecute him. Because but they the were. Video. Yeah. No, not even. The, they were like what he, they were like. He was. Everything he did was fine. He just made a split second decision. And, you know, a mistake happened. And then the video came out and then the controversy and then the district attorney finally stepped in. But he was just going to get away with murder. Yeah, technically it's legal because as an officer, they do have some protections. Like if you do something in the heat of the moment, like, but you, and you must do something else. I'm not a lawyer here. Alyssa is smarter than me. Talk. <laughs> you know, I mean, in what respect? What as far as the protection officer. So like he says he was reaching for his, um, he was reaching for his taser and he grabbed the wrong thing and shot him. So the, it's negligence. I mean, right. from a torch perspective, in a sim, I mean, uh, not from a criminal perspective. In yeah. a criminal perspective, it could be criminally negligent homicide. Yeah. Um, but at least from a civil perspective, it could be negligence, you know. And also, it could be negligent training on behalf of the municipal corporation that he works for, uh, aka the city government. Uh, you yeah, know? I'm sorry. What, what city was that? What city? Or town? You know, I don't know exactly. Charleston, Charleston, Charleston South Carolina, the North part, actually. No, okay. no, that's Oh, the oh, other oh, guy oh, was sorry. Oklahoma. 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 Uh, sorry so about that. Whichever the town or the city is, they could be sued potentially for negligent uh, training and hiring and supervision. Um, uh, but like I said, with respect to criminal charges, uh, usually in something like that, you would either be charged with like a reckless man, like a reckless assault or homicide or a criminally negligent homicide on the grounds that he didn't intend to kill this person. Yeah. Um, but he was either reckless or negligent in grabbing the taser instead of uh, grabbing the gun instead of the taser. All right. So we do have a call on the line one of my favorite people in the world miss deborah let your voice be heard hi miss fields how are you hi miss deborah hello everybody i didn't mean to overlook you listen i wanted to ask miss fields a question is it not illegal if you are not a police officer to dress in police uh attire and wear badges and carry guns and things of that nature that's a great in other words dressing up as a police officer when you're not? Right, so that's a great question, and the answer of it is, the honest answer to it is it depends. In certain places, like in municipalities, yes, it's absolutely illegal. You cannot... Let's be cops, for example. That was the name of a comedy. I saw movie, that movie. You awesome can't movie. pretend to be an officer when you're not. In other places, you can sign up as what's known as like an auxiliary police officer, um, or uh, in, I don't know what they call it in Oklahoma, but essentially where either you volunteer as a police officer, in which case you can technically play cop, and different local rules determine as to whether or not you actually get a gun. Uh, and obviously, in this place in Oklahoma, uh, and you see this a lot in small towns, especially out in the Midwest where they don't have enough officers and they actually can't, they don't have enough money in their budget to hire enough officers. So they say if people want to be officers on their own volition, they can essentially take a course uh-huh. and sign up and, and then have full rights. And that's kind of what you saw happen in this Oklahoma. So there's no real good answer to that. In New York City, if you dress up as an NYPD officer and pretend to be one, you will be arrested. Even if it's Halloween? Yes. No, 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 no. Obviously not if it's Halloween and it's your costume. But I mean, if you know, if if you are pretending to be a real NYPD officer, uh, then that is definitely illegal in New York. However, in places, in other places, that's not necessarily so. The moral of the story is if you don't want to get shot by the cops, try your very best not to be black not to or be Latino. Black. So <laughs> I do want to give the point in that he, the, the guy that shot the, um, the fake cop 
was able to get this badge of gun because he has donated a lot of yeah, money to that police department and they made him an honorary well, honorary off duty sheriff. Stan, we we got to be careful with that language. We can't. He's not a fake cop. I mean, that's not <laughs> no, what it he is. really is. No, 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 no. Oh. <laughs> let's be let's be precise in the language. As Alyssa already cited, in certain municipalities, one can be an auxiliary officer, a volunteer officer, some type of deputized sheriff. Or something. That's what now he you, is. Now you may pay for your actual gear, yeah. but he's not a fake cop. And we have to you're be right, clear not right. to be purporting that idea that he's running around masquerading as a police officer. He actually is a former cop, too. He worked um, back in the 60s. for one. I, don't, I was wondering what happened where he worked from like 1964 to 1965. In Oklahoma? Yeah, as a police officer. And then, times. and then he just started I'm selling insurance, but he always... I mean, he still obviously wants to be a cop. He got so. his money up. <laughs> I don't. I, mean, I, mean, I, I don't. I think like I said. I think the focus is on training, which is even if you live in a place that's out in the Midwest right. that allows this, uh, then the city and the municipality, uh, sorry, the city and the municipality. municipality is still responsible for training these people before they entrust them with a weapon and, and send them out on the street. Apparently, they were lying about the training. They didn't give them all the training they said. Mm. But we do have to close this out, guys, because we have more to talk about, and it's not just about black people being shot by cops. Even though that happens so much now that I'm forgetting all the names. This is let your voice be heard, and we'll be right back after this brief message of the dripping and the dropping and the hip hopping I know you got that bomb, shorty, can I get it? Can I get it? Something on my mind, girl, I know you ready. I, I can't stop eyeing you, loving the way you move. Got, got me obsessing the best, undeniable. Don't let go. Yo, you want to get it when you want that flow? You want to get it, but you're scared to a minute, because you're living for that minute when you want that flow. Making dough, and look at the way you dance. You got a lot of fans, make me want to pop some bands. <laughs> she do it all night. Oh, she's so excited. Is that your song now? No. So we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the, the voice, voice of, of Harlem. Harlem. And we are talking about the wage gap. Poor people want to get paid more money. They're so selfish. They should. And if you're just tuning in, welcome to the show. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley, Alyssa, and Jason. And if you guys want to chime into the show, you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And remember, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. Got him. <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you guys. Um, how would you feel if you walked into your job Monday morning and your boss called for a meeting and he was like, guess what, guys? I'm taking a drastic pay cut. And you know what? Everyone is going to get a substantial pay increase. Some of you guys are even going to get double your salary simply because you work for me. You're the real MVP. 
That's what I would say. <laughs> Did that be your response? I would hug my boss. Well, I, I was like, harassment, so I would not hug my boss. No, I, I would, would just be, say thank you. I would be so happy about that. It would make you want to work more. You would be more productive, oh, right? I'm not it working more. I'm getting oh, yeah, a raise definitely. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely. I would. It I would definitely want to work more and be more productive for that person, especially if they were taking into account that. Um, this is money I really need to live. Right, exactly. And it would increase your morale at the office and it would definitely change the work setting and the work culture. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate this 30-year-old millennial boss. His name is Dan Price in Seattle. And this is exactly what he did last Monday. He owns a company called Gravity Payments. And you know what? So many people started applying after this video went viral. So he actually filmed himself talking to his um, 120 employees at the company and telling them everyone will start getting paid $70,000. Starting now, everyone's salary is going to jump to 50000 if it's not there already. And then by 2017, you'll get you'll make um, 70000 And you know what? My $1 million a year salary is getting cut to fifty this year. And then by 2017, I'll be making 70000 I only have a dog. I'm single. I don't need all that money. Okay. What do you want me to say? I He pulled a Warren Buffett. <laughs> okay, that's all. Th- this guy, these millennials, this is all BS. This is crap. What? But it's his you money. You don't agree? That's no, the I would, market. Jason, what, what do you think about this? I'm going to tell you what I think about that. What do you think that. about that? I think he's creating false uh, perceptions for people. First of all, Warren Buffett did this stuff 50 years ago. He said, I don't need that much money. He has set his salary at $250,000 for the last 30 years. He is, has a multi-billion dollar company in Berkshire Hathaway. People are compensated very well. You can mix it, match it, package it however you want to. But once again, this is, this is a private employer who's able, through his own largesse and you know charity, provide this service or provide this compensation for his workers. So he's it's not realistic for everyone else necessarily. So what you're wait saying till, is trickle down doesn't small. work, right? Cause I, I, I like, never, I'm not a believer in trickle down, so don't try to hit me with but that. No, 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 I, I know, but I'm just, it, but that's that's really the key here. Even if you're not a believer, when we, the idea of trickle down is the idea that if you give CEOs tax breaks and they have more money in their own pocket and their mm-hmm. business makes more profits, then they will decide to trickle this money down to the employees. Guys, I, I'm going to tell you what right? I, as a, as a person. So that's you, what he's doing. So, uh, and but and everybody's saying it's a bad idea. So everybody, or mostly Republicans, maybe not you, mostly Republicans are saying this is a bad idea. So to me, that's Republicans admitting that trickle down doesn't work because it's a bad Selena. idea. You're selfish, Alyssa, and Selena, so let me tell you why. Because you know what? Two years ago, I had a job. It's a big corporation. And one day, I saw my boss come up in a Mercedes Benz. And I said, that's a beautiful car. And he goes, you know what? It is. And it's brand new. And if you work hard enough and apply yourself, I can buy a newer one next year. <laughs> And that is why trickle down economics works. Everyone, that boss was not me. I had nothing to do with that. (laughs) It wasn't Jason. It wasn't Jason. Be sure to say that. Thank you for clarifying. I mean, please, please clarify that for people. Um, No, no, no. Um, I I do understand. I know this is all going to segue into the greater discussion of the wage debate. However, ultimately, as someone who has owned a business, as someone who's worked for people, um, I think that we are missing the point. We believe that by raising the wage to a certain degree, we're going to help people get out of poverty. That's not going to help people get out of poverty. And no, I'm not sticking up for trickle-down economics. But there's another way that we can go about that. But we can get into that. In the I dome. definitely want to get into that. I understand we have a caller on the line. Yes, we do. Um, who would like to let their voice be heard. A Dallas Cowboys fan at that. So I'm not sure yes. if we put him on air. <laughs> Who's on the line? Hey, y'all. It's Taman. How's it Taman. going? Taman. Hey. Uh, howdy, y'all. I, I, well, Taman's <laughs> in Texas now, so I want to give him a big old howdy. And Taman can't find a good bagel. Taman, how are you enjoying the yeah, black hole? It's been driving me crazy. I do need a New York bagel, and I need to go to a New York deli, which has been driving me crazy. Taman, how are you enjoying gonna... the black only water fountains? 
<laughs> Taman, oh, that's Indiana, not Texas. Taman, I'm going <laughs> to ship you a bagel, but you got to pay me five times what it's actually worth. Because <laughs> no, that's, yeah. that's the free well, market. I'll, you know, that's I'll the free market, that. right? Give, give, me one for, give me one from A&S. I got the supply, <laughs> and you're, it's in demand, so I can charge what I want for it, right? <laughs> you can. You can, you can. you can do that. So, so Taman, <laughs> um, I'm no, while you called in, um, I just wanted to let everyone know. So, Taman actually tweeted us um, some, some really good comments. He says that minimum wage will hurt the poor more than it will help and our favorite black republican jason just made that same comment so taming you're on the line the floor is yours why are you saying and why did you tweet us that helping you know giving people slaving um at mcdonald's in retail um how, how does giving them a fair living wage hurting them well i think that you have to look at how economics works so i think that when you look, when you give somebody a wage a raise, you have to earn a wage raise. You don't. You're not, it's just something that's not given to you. It's something that has to go based on your skill. It has to go based on the business's payroll. And if the business doesn't have that wage, it hurts more than it helps. It can be replaced. For example, if I work at McDonald's, if I'm an owner of McDonald's, if I want to replace you with a computer so people order their food like you do at Chili's, I could easily do that if I wanted to. If I'm a smaller business, for example, a smaller restaurant or whatever, yeah, their wage goes up. But if I don't have that money, I could easily cut the uh, cut the payroll, cut scheduling. Something else is going to have to make up for it. It also goes with inflation. If you uh, if you put a raise on the on the uh, wage of the workers, then the um, then the wage then the the prices are going to go up because the businesses are going to try to allocate the lost money. I just wanted to say something with respect to inflation. I mean, and there may be a significant argument for why it shouldn't. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the, the voice, voice of, of Harlem. Harlem. And we are talking about the wage gap. Poor people want to get paid more money. They're so selfish. They should. And if you're just tuning in, welcome to the show. My name is Selena Hill. I'm here with Stanley, Alyssa, and Jason. And if you guys want to chime into the show, you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And remember, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. Got him. What? <laughs> okay, so I have a question for you guys. Um, how would you feel if you walked into your job Monday morning and your boss called for a meeting and he was like, guess what, guys? I'm taking a drastic pay cut. And you know what? Everyone is going to get a substantial pay increase. Some of you guys are even going to get double your salary simply because you work for me. You're the real MVP. <laughs> That's what I would say. Did that be your response? I would hug my boss. Well, I, I was like, so I would not hug my boss. No, I, I would, would just be, say thank in, you. I would be so happy about that. It would make you want to work more. You would be more productive, right? Oh, I'm not anyway. working more. I'm getting oh, a raise yeah, definitely. Right <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely. I, would, I would, would definitely want to work more and be more productive for that person, especially if they were taking into account that um, this is money I really need to live. Right, exactly. And it would increase your morale at the office, and it would definitely change the work setting and the work culture. Yeah. And that's why I appreciate this 30-year-old millennial boss. His name is Dan Price in Seattle. And this is exactly what he did last Monday. He owns a company called Gravity Payments. And you know what? So many people started applying after this video went viral. So he actually filmed himself talking to his um, 120 employees at the company and telling them everyone will start getting paid $70,000. Starting now, everyone's salary is going to jump to 50000 if it's not there already. And then by 2017, you'll get you'll make um, 70000 And you know what? My $1 million a year salary is getting cut. 
to 50 this year, and then by 2017, I'll be making 70000 I only have a dog. I'm single. I don't need all that money. Okay. What do you want me to say? He pulled a Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, okay, that's all. Th- this guy, these millennials, this is all BS. This is crap. What? But it's his you money. You don't agree? That's no, the free I would, market. Jason, yeah. what, what do you think about this? I'm going to tell you what I think about that. What do you that. think about that? I think he's creating false uh, perceptions for people. First of all, Warren Buffett did this stuff 50 years ago. He said, I don't need that much money. He has set his salary at $250,000 for the last 30 years. He is, has a multi-billion dollar company in Berkshire Hathaway. People are compensated very well. You can mix it, match it, package it however you want to. But once again, this is, this is a private employer who's able, through his own largesse and you know, charity, provide this service or provide this compensation for his workers. So he's, it's not realistic for everyone else necessarily. So what you're wait saying is trickle-down doesn't work, right? I, I, I never, I'm not a believer in trickle-down, so don't try to hit me with but that. No, no, that's no, right. I know, but I'm just, but that's that's really the key here. Even if you're not a believer, when we the idea of trickle-down is the idea that if you give CEOs tax breaks and they have more money in their own pocket and their mm-hmm. business makes more profits, then they will decide to trickle this money down to their employees. Guys, I, I'm going to tell you what right? I as a, as a person. So that's you, what he's doing, so, uh, and but and everybody's saying it's a bad idea. So everybody, mostly Republicans, maybe not you, mostly Republicans are saying this is a bad idea. So to me, that's Republicans admitting that trickle down doesn't work because it's a bad Selena. idea. You're selfish, Alyssa, and Selena, so let me tell you why. Because you know what? Two years ago, I had a job at this big corporation, and one day I saw my boss come up in a Mercedes Benz, and I said, "That's a beautiful car." And he goes, "You know what? It is, and it's brand new. And if you work hard enough and apply yourself, I can buy a newer one next year." <laughs> And that is why trickle down economics works. Everyone, that boss was not me. I had nothing to do with that. It wasn't Jason. It wasn't Jason. Be sure to say that. Thank you for clarifying. I mean, please, please clarify that for people. Um, No, no, no. Um, I I do understand. I know this is all going to segue into the greater discussion of the wage debate. However, ultimately, as someone who has owned a business and someone who's worked for people, I think that we are missing the point. We believe that by raising the wage to a certain degree, we're going to help people get out of poverty. That's not going to help people get out of poverty. And no, I'm not sticking up for trickle-down economics. <laughs> but there's another way that we can go about that. But we can get into that. In the I definitely want to get into that. I understand we have a caller on the line. Yes, we do. Um, who would like to let their voice be heard. A Dallas Cowboys fan at that. So I'm not sure yes. if we put him on air. <laughs> who, who's on the line? Hey, y'all. It's Taman. How's it Taman. going? Taman. Hey. Uh, howdy, y'all. I, I, well, Taman's <laughs> in Texas now, so I want to give him a big old howdy. And Taman can't find a good bagel. Taman, how are you y'all. enjoying the yeah, black hole? It's been driving me crazy. I do need a New York bagel, and I need to go to a New York deli, which has been driving me crazy. Taman, how are you enjoying gonna... the black's only water fountains? <laughs> Taman. Oh, that's Indiana, not Texas. Taman, I'm going <laughs> to ship you a bagel, but you got to pay me five times what it's actually worth. Because <laughs> that's, that's, that's the free well, market. I'll, I'll, you know, that's I'll the free market, that. right? Give, give, me one for, give me one from A&S. I got the supply, and you're, it's in demand, so I can charge what I want for it, right? <laughs> you can. You can, you can. you can do that. So, so Taman, um, I'm no, while you called in, um, I just wanted to let everyone know. So, Taman actually tweeted us um, some, some really good comments. He says that minimum wage will hurt the poor more than it will help. And our favorite black Republican, Jason, just made that same comment. So, Taman, you're on the line. The floor is yours. Why are you saying, and why did you tweet us that helping you know, giving people slaving um, at McDonald's in retail, uh, how, how does giving them a fair living wage hurting them? Well, I think that you have to look at how economics works. I think that when you look, when you give somebody a wage raise, you have to earn a wage raise. You don't, you're not, it's just something that's not given to you. It's something that has to go based on your skill. It has to go based on the business's payroll. 
And if the business doesn't have that wage, it hurts more than it helps. It can be replaced. For example, if I work at McDonald's, if I'm an owner of McDonald's, if I want to replace you with a computer so people order their food like you do at Chili's, I could easily do that if I wanted to. If I'm a smaller business, for example, a smaller restaurant or whatever, yeah, their wage goes up. But if I don't have that money, I could easily cut the, uh, cut the payroll, cut scheduling. Something else is going to have to make up for it. It also goes with inflation. If you, uh, if you put a raise on the, on the uh, wage of the workers, then the, um, then the, wage, then the, the prices are going to go up because the businesses are going to try to allocate the lost money. I just wanted to say something with respect to inflation. I mean, and there may be a significant argument for why it shouldn't, the minimum wage shouldn't be raised above a certain point for the reasons you point out that, you know, there is differences between people's skills and what they get paid to do certain things. But my biggest issue right now is that the minimum wage hasn't tracked inflation. You mentioned Mm. inflation. Inflation, you know, basically inflation is because we print more money, a dollar today is worth less than what a dollar was back in the 70s. Got him. But when we don't, track minimum wage with inflation, then we have a situation where the minimum wage today, which is federally speaking, is seven twenty five. If it tracked with inflation, then the minimum wage would be ten seventy four. So my argument is, you know, in some ways I do agree with you. Certain people, they didn't go to law school, they shouldn't get paid as much as I get paid because I'm an, I'm a lawyer. But at the same time, they shouldn't get paid less than what they should be getting paid because the minimum wage hasn't tracked with inflation. So my thing is, at the very minimum, minimum wage has to be equivalent to what it would be to, in the 70s today, and that would make it 1074. Ooh, and she said your breath stinks. Um, Tayman, I'm going <laughs> to give Tayman a chance to respond, then we'll get Jason in there, who I know probably wants to say something. Tayman, did you have a response? Well, yeah. I, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a response. It just goes to the allocation of what authority does government have over um, businesses' payrolls. I mean, that's uh, that's something that you have to ask yourself. I mean, we I mean, you guys know me. I'm a conservative. I don't want the government involved in my personal life. What involvement does the government have in a person or what uh, authority does the government have in a person's finances? I mean, a business is owned by a person. That person has the right to their finances. So what authority does the government have to uh, uh, what authority does the government have to pose a mandate on a business on a private business? Um, Jason? Hey, David, you, you, you should have seen the looks on our faces. Okay, I'm going to tell you something right here. As, as a fellow, I, I guess, I, I'm not sure if you're registered a Republican, but let's use conservative uh, as a title. Uh, I can't agree with you with this, what authority does government have? You sound like you're bordering on this sovereign citizen movement, okay? Uh, government has complete purview and jurisdiction when it comes to regulation of commerce. To go back to what you were saying, though, about raising the minimum wage, I agree with you. And then I, this is one of these rare nexus of shared agreement between all of us. We should be tracking the, the minimum wage with inflation. Raising it up to $15 an hour is egregious. And how the hell is a small business going to keep up with that? Has anybody thought about that? I mean, a big corporation can do it. McDonald's and all this other stuff can do that. But, uh, no, no, I, I think that it'll, it'll be another nail in the coffin for small businesses. I'm going to say it right now. Affordable Care Act has been disastrous for a lot of small businesses. I mean, many, many people I know who have advised businesses on They've been cutting hours, cutting wages, cutting positions, doing whatever they can so they don't have to comply with the mandate. If you tell them in New York State, oh, you've got to pay $15 an hour, I'm telling you, you're going to have a, a, a upswell of business migration out of the state as well as um, greater unemployment. And that's what I was saying earlier about raising the wage, particularly in the state, is not going to help people get up. It's going to help. More. It's going to assist in greater poverty because those low-skilled jobs, 
primarily are employed by, you know, uh, I mean, small businesses are the major employer, but those low-skill jobs are in the small business sector. I would like to jump in, and it's going to sound like I'm siding with Jason and Tamon, but I want to be very clear about something. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is, A, not a good idea, and, B, ridiculous. Let's discuss why. Because in some place like Arizona, if you make $11 an hour, you can live a very comfortable life. So depending on what state you're in, the wage does not have to go up that high. To raise it to something about $9 to $10 an hour is a great idea. But if you raise it to $15 an hour, we're still not, we're still not discussing or dealing with the issue of overpriced rent, like in New York and this area, the average cost of rent is $2,500 a month. That's, it's not addressing that issue at all. And then also, the, the $15 wage increase is for fast food workers, places like McDonald's, Burger King, which I think if you did that, even though I'm, I'm, I'm shaking on whether I think that they, they need that much of an increase, but McDonald's, Burger King, and Pizza Hut, and all, those, and all those places can afford it. McDonald's would have to raise the most expensive meal up by $0.63 cents if they wanted to make back the money they lost with raising minimum wage. I mean, I'm just curious to see if the, the, the rest of the panel, obviously, and anybody who's listening and wants to call in, uh, what happens if there was a proposal for a two-tiered minimum wage, whereas that would be based on, I don't know, I guess maybe a combination of some some formula that would determine essentially whether you're a small business or a large business. And we would say if you fall into this category, then you would have to pay a minimum wage of this. But if you fall into this category, then you'd have to pay a minimum wage of this. Or would that not work economically speaking? Because then it would create the same types of problems like with the Affordable Care Act where people would be trying to lay people off or whatever so that they could fall into Category A instead of B. Jason. No, no, I, I agree with you because people do that. Well, business owners, let me not use the term people. What we get into the Citizens United designation there, right? Right. Um, no, business owners already do that. And you're absolutely right. They do that with every other mandate and requirement is required by the federal government. People find a way if they're C Corp, how to be an S Corp. If they got to do Affordable Health Care Act, they find some way where they don't have to do it. So even if you create a two tier system, they're going fi- to find a way to allocate themselves into this area or the sector where the government mandate is less injurious to that particular party or uh, business. So, no, absolutely, Stan, jump in. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, but in, and also the people who get hurt the most now are small businesses who, because they hired one additional person because they wanted to employ the community, now the government's like, oh, you're not a small business anymore, pay us double. Um, no, can, can, I, can, can I add something real quick, just because um, yeah. I'm listening, I had a great sure. conversation and everything, and, and it's interesting, because I, I thought Stanley brought up a good point, because he was talking about the cost of living in different states. I, you know, I would, uh, you know, uh, bring up the point to why there is uh, such a big difference in cost of living uh, across different states. But I would also add that let's take $15 an hour in New York City. Let's say you're making that. I think most people can make the argument that that's in New York City, if you're living in New York, that's not enough to even – we keep hearing this, uh, this notion of to live off of. In New York City, $15 an hour is not enough to live off on. That's about so 30000 a year. So it's like, again, if you're making 11 or 12 or $13, there's going to be this allocation from other companies saying, well, why don't I get a raise? Why don't I get a why, why don't I get a, should I get a $7 raise too? Why does my raise only go up two or three bucks? Why everybody else went up $7? I mean, you will have, or, you know, seven or six, seven, eight dollars So you have that, you're, you're going to have that allocation. You're going to have that backlash. And I think, I, I personally believe that there's other ways because there's different balances of economics. There's different, you know, in, in different states, some states are doing worse economically than others and the solution is is oh well let's raise this let's raise that quite frankly you guys know me i'm a small government guy i think lower taxes less spending is a better way but i mean you know you're going to have that type of backlash with a seven dollar increase from one group of people compared to another 
Right, and, you- and, and, and I think, and that's why, and, and this is something that you'll agree with because it's a Tenth Amendment argument. That's exactly why we have a, a federal minimum wage that's not $15 an hour, that as far as I'm concerned should be 1075 which is the same as 725 adjusted for inflation. And then each individual state can decide on their own whether they want to go higher. New York City wants to go higher because the cost of living is higher there. They have the right to do that. They just can't fall below the 1074 federal minimum. Which, as I said, is just the 725 with an inflation adjustment. Right. Um, We we have um, Miss Deborah on the line who would like to chime in about the wage debate. Uh, Good afternoon, Miss Deborah. Yes, yes. Listen, I just want to ask something because I was just sitting here thinking: if 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 the people, for example, in McDonald's cannot get a fifteen dollar an hour wage, and Things continue to get worse. Where would you, what would you have them do and where would you have them go? Because I hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know, these are young people. As if young people don't have needs. This whole ageism thing is getting on my nerves anyway, okay? Because everybody has to eat. Everybody needs to have a place to stay. Where would you have people go? Um, that's a very good question, Ms. Deborah. And again, guys, if you want to call in, the number is 212-650-6903. Um, you know, just to add in, the average fast food worker is not just the regular teenager, as we imagine. The average age is, what, 27 right now? 28 years 28 old. 28 years the old. Worker, and, and they're the college graduates. Exactly. And so think about it. If you have these 28-year-old adults, college grads, who have to pay back all this tuition, working 40 hours a week, and they cannot sustain, they cannot feed their family, then something needs to be done. Jason, did you no, want to no, respond no. to Ms. Deborah? Well, I want to respond in this respect. Uh, you know, no one here is assigning or ascribing to people who are working in these particular jobs that you should just be sort of, you know, consigned to the netherworld of never being able to survive in the city. Broke but city. we have to recognize something when it comes to this, okay? And this is going to get a little personal for me. My, my parents are immigrants. My father came here, started as a damn janitor, okay? Now, what he did, like millions of us do who come here, you acquire the skills in order to get a better job. Now, I'm not saying that everyone necessarily has an opportunity, and we need to make it accessible. We need to make the resources equitable and uh, accessible to all people who want to achieve that. However, we should not get in the business of subsidizing people who don't want to achieve anything. I mean, well, I, I feel like that might not be a fair assessment because how do you know they don't well, want well, to achieve anything? That we don't know. We, we don't, don't know. If we make the access to those resources right. more available and equitable, then that is the, the deciding factor. That's and, the deciding factor. And I agree with you. We do have to go to break. Um, but before we do, no, I agree with you there, Jason. But I just think that what do we do in the interim? What do we do in the meantime? Because, right, we need to uh, to improve our education system. We need to make sure there's fair access for every child so that they can have upward mobility. But the thing is, what about their parents who can barely afford to feed them when they get home? Like, we have to do something right now. So, I mean... That's what I was saying. And, guys, if you want to call in again, we're getting a lot of phone calls. This is the time to call in. The number is 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And we're taking a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we have more with the wage debate on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Hey, y'all. We are uh, back. Are you singing? You're oh, not let singing? Let your voice be heard. 
radio. No. Okay. And you can call us at 212-650-6903. This is Stanley Fritz with Selena Hill, Alyssa Fuchs, and Jason. Eligio. Eligio. That's right. And we are talking about the wage gap. And let me tell you something. If you want to fix America, pay me $100,000 a day, and I will fix all of our problems. How will you do that, Stanley? By drinking whiskey and playing video games. And I believe that part. Um, So we are back, guys. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. Um, We're talking about the wage debate. Very heated this conversation, very heated discussion. Um, I wanted to bring the conversation here earlier this year in January. I think it was 21 states actually did raise minimum wage. Alyssa brought that up, that all states should have the ability um, and the right to raise their wage according to, you know, accordingly. Um, but the government, the federal government, has refused to act. Congress has refused to act. We know that President Obama wanted to raise the wage to, I think it was 10.75, and he made the proposal, but Republicans just didn't do anything why why is it that i mean this this is such a hot button issue and it's something that the american people want and um if you survey them why is it that congress isn't acting well two reasons one because they're not going to do anything to work with the black guy and two because they're not going to do anything cooperate with him in any way unless they absolutely have to because if you raise the wage that's just that's just another notch to his legacy they don't want to do that. So they'd rather hurt the American people than have President Obama, Obama succeed. Yes, because then they can blame him for the problems like they've been doing for the last seven years. Blame Obama. Right. I mean, but also you have to think out the alternatives, which is if Congress isn't going to act and the Congress isn't going to at least come up to 1074, uh, the adjusted rate, which I keep repeating because it's where the minimum wage really should be as far as I'm concerned then people are going to have to take other proposals. That's why I think it's so important to look at organizing that's going on. I mean, and, and there's an, this is an argument to be made that conservatives should agree with. If people get together and they lobby their employer to pay them more and the employer says, yes, I'm going to pay you more, that's the free market. That's not the government stepping in and telling the employer what to do. If a CEO, like the guy at Gravity Payment, says, I want to cut, take some of the money out of the profits that my company's making, and I want to cut my own salary and I want to trickle down this money to my employees, then again, that's the free market. So, you know, and those are proposals that conservatives should say, hey, yeah, that is the free market. And so if people want to do that, I may disagree with them personally, but I'm okay with that because it's not the government stepping in and doing it. Right. No. um, Jason, did you want to say something? No, no, no. All I was saying to myself is that, um, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about government intervention and, and, and the free market economy. But I, I think we're still losing the nugget of the discussion is really how, how practical or implementable is this sort of idea. I, I mean, once again, I, I, I would love to see the Congress implement something that tax the minimum wage to the realities of inflation in this country. Right. But once, I, I am thoroughly concerned about the majority of businesses in this country. I think 75 to 80 percent of the businesses in this country are small businesses. Right. How can they actually sustain that? That's on my mind. No, and, and that's a that's a really good question and point to make. But I also wanted to point out that since the recession from 2009 to 2012, the Economic Policy Institute found that average income for the top 1 percent has grew 36.8 percent, whereas for the rest of us, it's been falling for um by point four percent so i mean like i under i understand like the arguments made on the other side of half but we still have this ever increasing and ever widening wage gap and one way to address that from my opinion as well but this is what i think is by raising them and giving them a fair wage You're you know another way to address that is another thing that republicans don't want to do because 
redistribution is scary or something. But as you know, almost 99% or maybe you don't know, almost 99% of the wealth in this country is held by the top 1% and 2% of people in this country, whereas the bottom 98% of us hold only about 1% of the wealth. So if you really want to talk about how to solve the problem of income inequality without necessarily having to raise the wage higher than the adjusted inflation rate, then you could say, well, right now we have seven tax brackets, seven. Back when Ronald Reagan was president, there was like 10 tax brackets. Back when Eisenhower, a Republican, mind you, was president, there was something like 15 tax brackets. And when you had that many tax brackets and the aggregation was done in a much more reasonable and fair way compared to it is now, look at the highest tax bracket now. It's $433,000 and above. That's it. And above. So you could be making $4 billion a year and you're paying the same in taxes as somebody who makes $400,033 because there's no aggregation. And so then what you do is if you make more tax brackets and you re-aggregate it and you change the percentages for everybody, then people at the very, very top are, yes, going to be paying more, but somebody who makes $400,333 is actually going to be paying less. And you have to re-aggregate the whole entire tax bracket from the top down uh, and then you'll grow the economy from the bottom up if you do that, because you'll have more m- people in the bottom will be paying less taxes. So that's another way that you can deal with this that does involve government intervention. But we can't do that either because, God forbid, we raise taxes on the wealthiest, wealthiest people in the country. And I'm not talking about the corporate tax code because that's a whole other animal, as I'm sure. Oh, Jason yeah, yeah. I, I thought you knows. were chiming in about the effective tax rate for corporations, which is still number one in the world, right. in the developed world, you know, whatever that no, means. No, I'm talking right? about the individual tax You're talking about tax the tax individual tax bracket. I mean, you're absolutely right. Once again, though, uh, you know, it wouldn't offset the issue of wage inequality or wage injustice, if you want to put it that way, because that money would have to go back into the government coffers. And how would they distribute that? Right. So um, we addressed um, some solutions. We talked about what some um, private business owners are doing. Um, Melissa just gave another example of something that could be done that could help the um, increasing um, wage gap. But I wanted to know, what do you guys think everyone should receive like the same wage increase? And if not, how do we create a rate um, to help for people who work in these wages? Wages. Well, these wages. So the question is, why are they working in these places? Because there are not enough jobs. And the jobs that are out that people don't have the experience for. So what the government could do is a, two, is a two-pronged strategy. One, raise the wage to inflation rates, 10 an hour, and then also invest in more training for people to get these things. So one of the things that we do at my job, we act for environmental justice, is that we offer these worker trainings, and we get community members certified in OSHA and, um, some, and, other, and other construction certifications. And then we help them find jobs. So, and these are, these are people in the community who want to work but did not necessarily have the experience, but now they can go to a, a construction company and say, I have these certifications, hire me, and that can happen. And that's just one thing that we do, and we can't do as much as we like to because it's, you know, it's, it's a strenuous process. Right. And listen, this also sort of goes back to our first segment, which is the number one factor, I, I'm pretty sure, in how much money you're going to make over the course of your life is your level of education. And yeah. so education yep. is supremely important. And, and yes, people who have educations are working in some of these, uh, they're underemployed, as we'll call it. They're employed, but they're not working in a job that meets their education level. And that is a separate issue that we could spend a whole segment on. But ultimately, the point is, 
whether your education is more in a skills job, such as a vocational school, or whether your education is more the higher level of education you have, whether it's a regular course of education or a skills course of education through vo- uh, vocational training that lets you do those kinds of skill-based jobs, the higher you're able to earn. And so the focus has to come back to how much money the government is spending on putting into education and education standards and getting people educated and educated in the jobs that exist today, not the jobs that existed in the 1970s, because I think that's a big way uh, on top of the things we've already mentioned about the minimum wage um, in increasing people's wages over time. Jason, final words? No, I'm I'm on board. Solutions. Okay. Once again, we're going to reiterate this. Increase the minimum wage to the to 1074 as it would be federally implemented. The second part of it has already been touched on. We need to in- reintroduce vocational training. When you talk about college graduates who are serving in McDonald's or Starbucks or whatever the heck they're doing, I assure you they studied in something that has no applicability in this economy. And that is the problem. You talk about OSHA. I'm OSHA guy. I, yeah, I, I got an engineering degree, all that nonsense, right? But I still had to do OSHA. I still had to do hazardous materials and all that good stuff. I have technical skills that are useful and employable. That is the problem when it comes to people who are overeducated in those jobs. When it comes to people who are not as educated, the issue is access. They need access. But I assure you many of those people will get can achieve it if they want it. Yeah, and and just to respond to that really quick, and, you know, sometimes that means, and I'll give you an example. Right now, for every one, uh, I'm sorry, for every 10 nurses, I'm sorry, there's a, for every one nurse, there's like 30 jobs. But for every one lawyer job, there's 30 lawyers that want to fill it. So it's also about going into fields where jobs exist. Right now, the best field you can go into is nursing because there's yeah. lots and lots of jobs and there's not a lot of people that want to fill them. And one of the worst jobs you could go into, I hate to say it, is being a lawyer because there's no jobs and there's lots and lots of lawyers that want right. that want to fill them. So that's another big thing Just that we have to focus well, on. Hey, Alyssa, to be your lawyer. Well, speaking of healthcare, that in- that industry is actually um, one of the fastest growing industries in America right now, but it just so happens to be that many of the workers are making $10 an hour, especially if they're taking care of the elderly or the sickly. And these are, you know, that job, even though we don't value it in society, that's something that we all can personally relate to. I mean, I want someone who loves their job, who's productive and motivated to be caring for me if I would ever need that type of care, but yet we don't pay them. And I just wanted to end the segment with this by saying, with stagnation and income equality, it destabilizes um it destabilizes our economy and our democracy when people aren't making enough money to spend and put that money back into the economy. It, ho- it, it, it hurts all of us. So I think that with the Fair Rage Act, um, you know, I've been supportive of the movement from the beginning. They've made a lot of progress since 2012, which is when this um, the fast food worker strike first came about. And now it has grown into a global movement. And we've seen so many progress in 21 states um, starting this year. They all increased their minimum wage because these workers weren't afraid to go walk out of their fast food restaurants, walk out of McDonald's, come on the front lines and say, we demand a fair living wage. And they're getting it state by state. The government has, you know, the federal government has not act. We see that they're not acting, but we can act on a personal basis. Employers can act. And I think that if, if, if even if you wanted to act, you could join the movement yourself. They're always striking and you can give money um, and donate to their cause. But on that note, I'm going to wrap it up. We are going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about how you can get Cuban rum, some Cuban cigars, and everything else that's good in Cuba. Right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. We are back and headed to Cuba for vacation. I really want to go to Cuba. Well, you actually, <laughs> you actually, that's not Cuban. 
You actually can go Fine. to Cuba. Can um, I? Yeah, you can. There's ways to do it right now using uh, an educational visa. There's nope. programs that are offered through different universities that are, you know, trips that you can take, and they help you to secure the educational visa. Uh, you cannot right now just go on vacation without the educational visa, from what I understand, uh, unless you have some other type of visa that allows you to go there. I'm going to get into that in a little more detail. Um, But ultimately, yeah, at some point in the future, and hopefully sooner rather than later, you will be able to just go on vacation there without this educational visa. Sounds good. Uh, So let's back it up, though, and start from the beginning. Um, Last Tuesday, the White House announced that the president is going to be removing Cuba from the list of state sponsors of of terrorism. Uh, Cuba has been on this list since 1982 because of its backing of revolutionary movements in Latin America and in Spain. Uh, The president made this decision after the State Department did a review of Cuba's presence on that list uh, and after a historic meeting that the president had with Cuban leader Raul Castro. Uh, The review began back in December. The president announced back in December that he was seeking to reestablish diplomatic ties with Cuba after five decades, which is 50 years, for those of you who don't know, of hostility that began during the Cold War, which we're not going to get into the Cold War. But if you remember, that was our longstanding dispute with Russia or actually with the Soviet Union at the time. It was the Soviet Union. Um, And administration officials said that the U.S. continues to have concerns with some of Cuba's behaviors, but they are not factors in its terrorist listings. So um, how did this all come about? Well, the White House submitted a report to lawmakers uh, certifying uh, that Cuba has not provided support for terrorist groups for six months. uh, And they stated that the government has received assurances uh, from the Cuban government that Cuba will not do so in the future ever. Uh, Members of Congress now have 45 days to review the president's decision before it can be formally approved. Congress can block the president from taking Cuba off of the list, and the House and Senate can pass a joint resolution prohibiting it, but Obama can veto that move uh, as well, and then they would have to override that veto, which, as we know, is very difficult. Administration officials have said that they still do have separate concerns about establishing an embassy in Cuba and about uh, the embargo, um, such as, for example, whether diplomats will be able to travel in the country freely and speak to people without interference by the Cuban government. Um, And with respect to the embargo, uh, American companies that are hoping to be able to import or export, um, mostly export consumer goods from the U.S. to Cuba or to build hotels there will still face a tangle of different sanctions uh, that are made up of the trade embargo. Uh, That trade embargo is a very complex set of laws, rules, and regulations, and executive orders that only Congress can eliminate. So even with the president's historic announcement, uh, we would still need congressional action to get rid of the embargo. Now, the president did ease the embargo back in January when the government announced that Americans can travel to Cuba a little more freely, as I had already said, and they can send more money to ordinary Cubans. And the government also said it would allow broader exports of U.S. telecommunications equipment in an attempt to get the country to open up via the Internet, essentially, Um, and that Americans who do travel to Cuba will be able to use their credit cards there, which will be great uh, because part of the problem was that you had to spend all cash. Um, But... Companies still will not be able to invest in Cuba or do business with the state except for importing goods that are intended to help Cubans like food, medicine, telecommunications equipment. Um, And even those American exporters with special licenses to sell to Cuba cannot offer Cuban importers credit, uh, which means they will not be able to have commercial imports of Cuban goods. However, this question about when can I get some cigars and when can I get some rum, because I'm sure you've been tuning into this whole segment and that's what you really want to know. You want the answer. You cannot, a commercial 
companies, as I already mentioned, cannot import these goods into the U.S. right now. However, if you go to Cuba, you are allowed to bring back $400 worth of goods and out of that $400 worth of goods, $100 of those goods can be alcohol and tobacco. That's it. No more than $100 How much do you need, Stanley? worth of the goods <laughs> that you can bring back can be alcohol and tobacco. So if you do go to Cuba on one of these educational trips or you obtain a visa not through educate for educational purposes but one of the other types of visas, which, as I mentioned, will be easier to get, you can bring back $100 worth of rum or cigars. Per person? Can- is that your strategy? Like, you're just trying to scheme this how you can bring back all this rum and cigars. Do you smoke Cuba cigars? Cigar? I would love to go to Cuba. Right, well, here's a, a big, big here's a big caveat <laughs> to that. You may not resell any Ooh. of those goods why, why once you it? get back money, supply and demand, just like Taman wants that bagel, right? If I'm there's about to smoke this all is, that cigar. This is simple, simple microeconomics. If there's a high science. demand for Cuban cigars and there's a low amount of supply, the supply is low, then you can raise the price as much as you want and therefore you could make a killing off of selling these cigars. You but, think but, if I sell them on a block, they, they really going to go and call the yeah, IRS that's what I'm saying. Me? How are they going to know if you do? Well, I mean, you just gave me the them. idea, I mean, that That goes back to anything. How does the government know that you sell drugs which are illegal. Listen, as a, the law, your lawyer, no, I'm not Our, your lawyer. I would love you to be my lawyer. You did not retain me, but just <laughs> generally speaking, because I cannot give specific legal advice, I would generally advise that if you do bring back $100 worth of Cuban cigars or rum, you don't resell it because you will be committing a crime. What if you but, give it to someone and they give you a gift of $150? Yeah, that's what I, or a hug. What if they're like, hey, I, well, in, in this is yeah. very <laughs> similar to what goes on as we talked about in a previous quickie um, about whether what you can do in uh, D.C. about marijuana, right? Exactly. Right? It's the same kind of gift economy. You can give me a hug, yes. and I can give you a cigar, because that's your hug as much as nice as it is. It's not something of value. But if you gave me $100 with that hug, that would be a resale, and that would be something of value. Oh, that, that's what not if allowed. I asked for a friend to borrow $150, and then they <laughs> gave it to me. And they're like, hey, do you have any more of that Cuban rum? And I go, oh, I do have a bottle left if you would like that bottle for free. Plotting and scheming. Well, yeah, because then th- they still have to pay you back the $150 they loan. That's two separate transactions. Alyssa, can I borrow $150? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That depends. Well, depends, I, it depends what you need $150 for. For this weed. No. <laughs> <laughs> the disclaimer, that was yeah, that, a that, complete that, joke. I don't know why I said joke. I was trying to say for this, for this uh, what, cigar, did but Marilyn, I thought of a curse word. Did you word. get Marilyn into a situation that you need to now borrow $150 uh, for? No. So you meant to say cigar. Yeah, I meant to say cigar. Because you're, you're not endorsing a, a transaction no, of that nature. No. And then I was trying to say a curse word, and I said, oh, yeah, we can't curse because of FCC. And then weed came you out. You know, just know. to yeah. finish up, in order to really fix the embargo situation, uh, the president or a future sorry, president sorry. obviously would have to certify to Congress uh, that a transitional or democratically elected government was now in power in Cuba. Alternatively, Congress could vote on its own to get rid of the embargo. And once Congress repealed the embargo, then commercial exporters would be able to uh, import and export or mostly import Cuban goods and then resell them for commercial value. But um, my final words on this is that, uh, you know, I personally think this is a good idea. I know some people disagree, but dropping Cuba from the terrorism list is part of a welcome, as far as I'm concerned, is part of a welcome dismantling of the isolation wall that we erected more than a half a century ago. It has no purpose, as far as I'm concerned, in today's world, and I do think Congress should lift the embargo. The administration should continue to loosen restrictions on travel, 
trade, and banking. It's time to let the Cold War die out and to move forward into the future. We are so long overdue. And speaking of overdue and things in Cuba, they just started getting um, Wi-Fi hotspots in Cuba. But I was like, I'm against it. And here's why. No, because I was like, you know what? They have their own culture, and you you know once they start getting access to everything else, I don't want it to like infuse in their like their culture is authentic and their wholesome. culture is authentic because they're not allowed to do exactly. anything. Exactly, and yeah. I think they so should you keep wanna, it like so I want to keep the, people oppressed. I want to go to the Cuba, the real Cuba. I don't want to go there and see McDonald's and hear them speaking English. I want to experience the real culture <laughs> of Cuba. That's why I was right, like, I want to go now. Well, I mean, you sound like somebody who wants to experience the real culture of. The slouch, so that's why we should keep people in slavery. <laughs> so, no, no, guys, no. we have to go. <laughs> no, Jason um, wanted to say something. Really no, no, all I wanted to say, I, I, I <laughs> Jason, as our Afro Latina, please, as as the tenant, you know, uh, token Afro Latino, all I can say, voy para allá, vamos a visitar Cuba, <laughs> Cuba, Cuba. Viva la Cuba. Okay, and on that note, we have to say goodbye. But guess what? We'll be back next Sunday right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And you can check us out on iTunes. Download our podcast at LYVBH Radio. And we'll see you next week. I'm so serious, mommy. Get it in with your Bobby and follow me, cause I got tree. And I'm higher than mounting. And your body's bottoming. I don't snitch, I don't sing, I don't Kanye album. Hi, this is Flo Wiley inviting you to listen to Blackbeat New York every Thursday night at 6. Blackbeat New York is all about what's happening on the arts and culture scene in New York City with a special emphasis on what's going on in the sweet village of Harlem. Celebrity interviews, ticket giveaways, Blackbeat weekly events calendar, and I'll play for you some of the finest music you'll hear on the radio anywhere. Every Thursday at 6, Blackbeat New York, The Flo Wiley Show.